There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium. Science you can use. And iodine, the and Dr. Thorium, Joe and Show and on CJAD 800. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismuth, bromine, lithium. Well, happy new year to everyone, and uh, what can I say? Hopefully, it will be better than the last one was. And if I'm allowed to make a prediction, I will predict that by this time next year, we will be in a much better situation. I think that the virus uh, will have petered out to a certain degree. We will not be totally rid of it, but uh, I think we'll be over the worst of it. All right. Well, hopefully we'll be around this time next year to see whether or not that prediction was correct or not. All right. Let me start off, as I usually do, by throwing out a couple of questions to you guys. First, Louis Washkonsky said, I am the new Frankenstein. Why did Louis Washkansky say that? And the second question, where did the term jumbo originate? Okay, two questions for you to puzzle over. Louis Washkansky said, I am the new Frankenstein. Why did he say that? And where did the term jumbo originate? You know that I deal with science all the time. And science is all about making observations and coming to conclusions. But you know what? That can be a very treacherous process. The observation that the sun rises in the morning and sets at night was enough for people to conclude that the sun rotated around the earth. It wasn't until Galileo and Copernicus came along that this conclusion was shown to be incorrect. Since the 1950s, in the air have risen significantly. <clears throat> One might therefore conclude that an increase in carbon dioxide in the air is causing obesity. But correlation does not prove a cause and effect relationship. Science, of course, tells us that obesity is caused by an increase in calorie intake, not by carbon dioxide inhalation. But it is true, of course, that both obesity and carbon dioxide have increased in step, but they have nothing to do with each other. There are many other similar examples. Uh, let me suggest this one. <clears throat> do shaking trees cause wind, or does the wind cause trees to shake? If you live in a jungle and have never gone anywhere else, that question may not be so easy to answer. Wind and shaking trees always go together. Of course, sailors will know that there is wind in the middle of the ocean where there are no trees to cause it. Okay, here's another one. Finland, one of the highest rates of heart disease in the world, and the Finns own more saunas per capita than any other nation. Does taking saunas cause heart disease? In fact, studies show that frequent saunas reduce the incidence of cardiovascular disease. So what's the story here? Well, Finns consume roughly 80 grams of fat a day, far more than the World Health Organization's recommended daily intake of 50 grams. They also love sugar, consuming close to double the 50 grams per day stipulated by the WHO. Obviously, their high cardiovascular disease rate is more likely due to a poor diet than to their love of saunas. 
While associations cannot prove a cause and effect relationship, they can serve as a springboard for further investigation. The observation that lung cancer was seen more frequently in smokers spawned studies that proved smoking did indeed cause the disease. Of course, it's not the only cause. People who have never smoked can also develop the disease. Air pollution and naturally occurring radon gas emissions can also cause lung cancer. Then there was the observation that workers involved in the production of polyvinyl chloride, PVC, from vinyl chloride had an unusually high incidence of a rare type of cancer uh, in the liver, and that initiated studies that then clearly demonstrated the carcinogenicity of vinyl chloride. So that's pretty interesting, right? But even more interesting is when we go back in history to see some of the observations that people made. So let's go back for a moment to 1731, when the Italian physician Bernardo Ramazzini published a book called Diseases of Workers, which is regarded to this day as the first systematic investigation of occupational hazards. In a chapter entitled Diseases of Cleaners and Privies uh, and uh, uh, Cesspools, he described how these workers often suffered from a painful inflammation of the eyes and also noted their reports that copper or silver coins in their pockets turned black. Ramazzini concluded that as the workers disturbed the excrement, some vapor was released that caused both the eye irritation and the color change of the coins. Sewer gas, as the emanations came to be called, were a serious problem. In France, there were so many accidents among cesspool workers and sewer workers, number of them fatal, that the government appointed a special commission to study the problem. A report in 1885 concluded, like Ramazzini had, that the cause was some sort of gas emitted from the sewer. In, eight, in 1772, then, a Swedish apothecary, Carl Wilhelm Scheele, who had developed a keen interest in chemistry, uh, became the first person to really have a careful look at what these gases may be. Now, he was never able to identify the sewer gas as what we now know it is, which is uh, <clears throat> hydrogen sulfide. But he was the first one to actually produce this gas, or air as he called it, synthetically in the laboratory by uh, heating uh, a certain substance. We call it iron pyrites or fool's gold, which is ferrous sulfate. Uh, and uh, he was able to heat this and uh, noted that a gas was given off and that that gas had a, a almond-like odor. Well, the almond-like odor was was maybe not the best description. <laughs> that would have been a better description for hydrogen cyanide, which Shealy also was the first one to uh, to produce. But anyway, he was able to show that that this is a gas that could be made by, by heating certain uh, uh, substances. But it was uh, later in 1776 that French chemist Claude-Louis Bertollet actually identified the chemistry here as uh, hydrogen uh, sulfide. And uh, another Frenchman, Baron Guillaume Dupuytren, who subsequently showed that it was the gas uh, that caused the problems in the sewers of Paris. So now we have to ask another question, though. 
where does this hydrogen sulfide in sewers come from? It mostly comes from the reaction of sulfates with sulfate-reducing bacteria which are present in sewage. All right, then you want to ask, where do sulfates come from? Well, in turn, sulfates form when microbes act on sulfur-containing proteins in decomposing organic matter, such as sewage. So as far as the coins are concerned, <clears throat> hydrogen sulfide reacts with silver or copper to form silver sulfide or copper sulfide, and that is the black deposit on, on the metal. Now, there's an interesting, uh, rather recent connection here. Uh, this phenomenon of, of copper turning black was noted on copper air conditioning coils in some Florida homes and in houses rebuilt in, um, in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. In both these cases, supplies of domestic drywall were in short supply and drywall had to be imported from, from China. Now, drywall, interesting material. It's made of gypsum, which is calcium sulfate, uh, in between uh, layers of paper, and that can be painted over. It's much easier to just install this, this wall than to, to plaster. <clears throat> anyway, so they imported this drywall from China, and it seems that the calcium sulfate in the Chinese drywall, under humid conditions, uh, was able to release hydrogen sulfide. Maybe <clears throat> it had some microbes in there because uh, the gypsum had not had proper preservatives added to it, and the hydrogen sulfide was uh, was released. And that caused the copper pipes in homes to turn black. But worse than that, it also caused people to complain of the odor of rotten eggs in their homes. And uh, indeed, when eggs spoil, bacteria break down their protein components and release hydrogen sulfide. Uh, the amounts uh, are way too small to cause poisoning, uh, but they will remind you of a sewer. Now, this problem with the drywall has been fixed because any drywall that is imported into North America from anywhere else has to be first tested to make sure that it does not release hydrogen sulfide. So there's the story of uh, Katrina, rotten eggs, hydrogen sulfide, and copper and silver coins turning black. What is the shape of the molecule? Okay, we have a flood of uh, questions. <laughs> I have a flood of questions on the text, and I should have told you that to text it's 514-800 and to call us on the phone, 514-790-800. And a flood of questions about uh, masks. Uh, very difficult to answer, answer this. Uh, I mean, testing shows that the N95 masks filter out uh, uh, aerosols the best, but those are very uncomfortable to wear for any periods of, of time. Uh, personally, I use the blue mask. I, I just make sure that, uh, you know, the clip around the nose is, is properly clipped. Make sure that the mask is tight enough. Uh, frankly, I don't think that... that uh, 
it makes a huge difference uh, what you what you uh, use as the mask as long as you have tight fitting so either the the N95 or the blue the cloth masks are not as good because uh, they uh, do not uh, have uh, the right porosity for preventing particles from uh, from going through of course uh, you know if you want to put a cloth mask over the the uh, polypropylene blue mask uh, that's not going to be uh, harmful. But I, I think that all of this hand-wringing over uh, what kind of mask to use is, is, uh, is uh, unnecessary. What we really need to do is to make sure that you're properly distanced from anyone who may be passing on the, the virus. And, of course, you want to make sure that um, you're getting vaccinated. Uh, there's just no doubt that uh, uh, the vaccines uh, are effective at reducing the number of hospitalizations. And really, that's what we are uh, are after. Uh, now, interestingly, there there are, of course, some issues with the, the vaccination. And one that I wasn't uh, aware of, which was uh, brought to my attention by Sheila, one of our listeners, uh, is that uh, there have been some errors in the vaccination. And in a, a couple of cases adrenaline was injected instead of the the vaccine. How did that happen? Because uh, as you know, it is possible to have an anaphylactic reaction to the vaccine. It is extremely rare, but it is possible. So of course, attendants uh, at the vaccination centers have to be ready with uh, adrenaline. Now, adrenaline, of course, is familiar to most people as the EpiPen. Uh, however, in, in uh, many settings, it's not the EpiPen that they use. That was developed for personal use for people to take along with them. Uh, usually, adrenaline is injected with a syringe that can look very much like the syringe that is used for the vaccine. And there have been a couple of cases where the um, nurses or other people who were doing the vaccine for some unknown reason, picked up the epinephrine, the adrenaline injector, and used that instead of the uh, vaccine. Now, it does not present any significant risk because adrenaline uh, might give you a bit of of, of tachycardia, but it's not going to do uh, anything um, else. But of course, the problem is that then they wouldn't have been vaccinated. But I think this is just so rare that, that, you know, it uh, hardly... uh, should be mentioned, except that it's so unusual that that deters, uh, that uh, merits some uh, mention. Uh, something else that I, I think needs to be mentioned, you may remember that early on in, in COVID, there was a lot of talk about colchicine. Colchicine is the gout medication, the anti-inflammatory substance, very effective for gout. It is actually extracted from the autumn crocus, and um, there was a lot of, of talk about its possible uh, benefit in, in COVID, which was reasonable because it is an anti-inflammatory substance and the um, uh, virus, of course, can give rise to uh, serious inflammation. Turns out now that after proper studies have been done, that colchicine unfortunately flops. The very early studies did show some slight effect. But as I've always said, one has to be very careful with jumping on any bandwagon that that, uh, rolls by, because we see so often that the original optimistic results that are based on small-scale, rather improperly carried out, hurried studies show some benefit, 
and then you organize better studies with more people, proper controls, and the benefit disappears. And this is just what uh, we are seeing now with colchicine. Uh, the original study, which was a rather haphazard kind of study called the Cold-Corona trial, uh, did show a very small benefit. But now, an analysis of a number of properly controlled randomized trials uh, have been carried out, and unfortunately, it shows that uh, colchicine has had no effect on um, hospitalized patients who are in the hospital for for COVID. I wish I could tell you different, but uh, you know we go by the uh, evidence. All right, uh, let me just uh, go to the lines here because there are some people waiting. Israel, Jovis, hello. Uh, if not Israel, then we go to Jean-Pierre or Jerry. How are you? Or Hello? Jerry. Yes. I okay, wanted to answer sir. the uh, Louis Washkansky. I think he's the South African dentist who got the first heart transplant. Exactly. Dr. Barnard. Exactly. So do you know when that was? I want to say 78. No, well, not you may I wa- didn't look it up. I was, uh, <laughs> I guessed it, so. You may want to say that, but you're wrong. It was uh, 1967. When oh, the boy, first heart that early. Yeah. Wow. Yes, yes. Wow. And uh, Dr. Barnard actually asked the question whether or not it was infinitely better to transplant the heart than to bury it to be devoured by worms. Oh. Quite clever. So anyway, he, he carried out the heart transplant, taking the heart of 18-year-old Denise Darval and transplanting it into 53-year-old Louis Washkansky who had congestive uh, heart failure. Mm. And uh, uh, the young lady had been killed in a car accident. So her heart was uh, uh, you know, uh, not damaged in the accident. So anyway, it was upon waking up after surgery that Washkansky told the nurse, I am the new Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, actually, that was sort of the wrong terminology because he should have said, I am the new Frankenstein monster. Because Frankenstein, of course, was the, cre- the the creator. No, he wasn't a doctor. He wasn't oh. a doctor. That's a common misconception. Oh. He was he was just an undergraduate university student. Anyway, Boschkansky okay, well. uh, died 18 days after the surgery. Mm-hmm. But but uh, nevertheless, you know that pioneering effort was monumental because within weeks there were a number of other procedures carried out around the world. And uh, today, of course, there are hundreds performed every year and uh, with, with great success. The, originally, the problem was rejection of the heart, but that has uh, essentially been solved by uh, a, a number of, uh, uh, of, of drugs that will prevent the uh, rejection. Anti-rejection so, drugs, yeah. Yeah, so Barnard really was uh, obviously a, a pioneer, and uh, today, even more heart transplants would be performed if people were more willing to give up their hearts. So, May you I know, offer you is... a comment on the masks? Yeah. Doctor? So yeah. It, uh, I'm a dentist, and in the office we'll often use the blue mask, but we use ASTM level 3. So this, yeah. I don't know, you may know there's 1, 2, and 3. So I don't know if yes. you, uh, your, your listeners know that. 3 is very, very close to an N95 and certainly... More, more comfortable, and the filtration is almost the same. It's just that it's not as tight a fit. So if people can look for either a two or a three on the box, 
uh, they'll probably be better protected than some of the very, very cheap ones. And as you said, it's even still better than a cloth mask. Right. And uh, the trouble, I think, with the number three is that they're not widely available. Yeah, that's the problem. We yeah. even in yeah. dental supply offices, they're giving us like a couple of boxes at a time now. So, yeah. But we do have Canadian manufacturers now. The masks are coming in, and uh, and they're uh, they're more available. So I just thought I'd give that to your listeners. Good, very good. All thanks right. A lot. Have thanks, a great Happy thanks, New Year. Thanks very much. Same same to you. Okay. So since that question was answered, uh, I will replace it with uh, another question. What food provides negative calories when eaten? What food provides negative calories when eaten? Okay. 514-790-0800. You can text to 514-800. And of course, I still have the other question. Where did the term jumbo originate? For which I had an interesting, although wrong, uh, answer texted. But I'll, I'll read this because interesting. Uh, could it be that Jumbo came from Dumbo, the elephant who flies? Elephants are considered giant, and so Dumbo is a big flying, but planes are jets, so take the J from jets and mix it from Jumbo, and mix it with Dumbo, you get Jumbo. Well, you get points for ingenuity there, uh, but uh, no, that it's not correct. But there is a, a little smidgen in there that... Uh, uh, does actually ring true, although it isn't exactly Dumbo. Anyway, I'm sure someone else will have the answer to where our term Jumbo, of course, would signify something very large, comes from. Miracles from molecules are dawning every day. Discoveries for happiness in a fabulous Okay, let's get back. I suspect that uh, some of you yesterday morning may have woken up with a hangover. And a lot of people ask questions about just what is going on with the hangover. It's actually multifactorial. Dehydration plays an important role. Uh, because when you drink alcohol, the body tries to eliminate it. Uh, you will urinate more. You become more dehydrated. Uh, it also causes hypoglycemia. And uh, when you're hypoglycemic, you have low blood sugar, you tend to feel off. But in all likelihood, the greatest contributor to the hangover, believe it or not, is methanol. This is an alcohol that is found in very small concentrations in many beverages because it's a byproduct of fermentation. And it is metabolized by the same enzymes as is ethanol, which of course is the common alcohol in beverages. But the products this time are formaldehyde and formic acid instead of acetaldehyde and acetic acid, which is what we get from, from alcohol. And these are what produce the hangover symptoms. Now, why does this happen only the morning after? Because the enzymes prefer to work on ethanol instead of methanol. Only when all the ethanol has been metabolized do they switch to methanol. And that then explains the hair of the dog remedy for hangovers. A drink in the morning supplies ethanol for the enzymes to act on, so they'll leave methanol alone. As the enzymes busily metabolize the ethanol, 
the methanol is excreted in the urine without being converted to formic acid. A Bloody Mary may be the best choice here because vodka contains very little methanol. Confirmation about the critical role of methanol in hangovers comes from a study showing that treatment with a drug called 4-methylpyrazole, which blocks the breakdown of methanol, can eliminate the symptoms. Anyway, I, I must say that I, you know, I, I always feel a bit ambivalent talking about uh, any kind of hangover cure because alcohol is a very destructive beverage if improperly used. It's probably more damaging to society than all illicit drugs combined. Cirrhosis of the liver, strokes, breast cancer, oral cancers, domestic violence, sexual assault, and of course, car accidents have all been linked to alcohol abuse. In North America, there's an alcohol-related car accident every 30 seconds. That is absolutely frightening. So uh, the best way to deal with a hangover is to not let the situation arise. Uh, drink moderately, no more than about five uh, servings a week, and you don't have to worry about the hangover. Okay, let me go to Ed, who I think may have an answer to my questions. Ed? Hello? Hi, Ed. Hello? Hello? Yes, okay. go ahead. One answer is celery, I think. Well, I asked that question specifically in order to trigger that uh, wrong answer. Okay. Because the fact is that there is no such thing as a food that has negative calories. You know, the story that spreads around the Internet is that celery takes more energy to chew than what you get out of it in terms of calories, and that is just not true. There's nothing about celery that is magical. Uh, of course, the medical medium, that nutcase who has a radio show and uh, dispenses advice that supposedly he gets from the spirit of a departed doctor, he will tell you that uh, celery juice is a miracle. It is not. And there is no such thing as a food that takes more energy to consume than the energy that it provides. Anyway, that's the reason that I asked that that uh, question to make sure that you get the correct notion that no food exists that you can eat in order to lose weight. Okay. Anyway, thanks a lot for, for uh, that. Wait, I, the other question I think is um, at some point there was a fair or a circus touring England and uh, the name of the big elephant in that event was called jumbo all right so you are yes you're one for two so batting 500 is not a bad average and uh, that will now allow me to tell you the very interesting story of uh, jumbo indeed who was an elephant an african elephant and uh, it was the first one to reach uh, modern europe uh, alive born in east africa he was captured by hunters 1862 he was taken to the uh, Jardin des Plantes Zoo in Paris, and the zoo actually traded him to the London Zoo for a rhinoceros, believe it or not, an animal-for-animal animal trade. And Jumbo lived at the London Zoo for about 16 years, and he was extremely, extremely uh, uh, popular. He was uh, very, very large, 13,000 pounds, supposedly, and uh, roughly four meters tall. 
uh, although that is questioned because that those uh, uh, that weight and the size uh, was uh, promoted by P.T. Barnum, who bought the elephant from the London Zoo uh, and uh, brought him over to America. And this initiated an outrage in Britain uh, because their elephant had been taken away from them. And uh, there were letters to Queen Victoria urging that Jumbo remain in in London. Anyway, uh, uh, Barnum prevailed. He was able to ship the uh, elephant to the United States. And so began Jumbo Mania uh, because there was so much publicity around the arrival of of this uh, giant elephant. And uh, the civilized world was flooded with neckties, jewelry, soaps, and and all kinds of souvenirs based upon uh, Jumbo, who was the star of uh, Barnum's Circus and toured with the circus. And he was extremely, extremely famous. I mean, children uh, lined up just to get a glimpse of Jumbo as he was taken off the train to uh, to be led into the big top. Anyway, uh, the story has uh, somewhat of a a sad ending because on September 15, 1885, Jumbo was killed and was killed in Canada, St. Thomas, Ontario, where the circus had come and they had just uh, finished the performance and the uh, elephant was being led back to his railway car because in those days, of course, the circus traveled by uh, railroad and he had his own car. And while he was being taken back to his, uh, his car, uh, he was hit by an oncoming train. And uh, his death was met with worldwide grief. Uh, and uh, Barnum sued the railway, uh, but... Uh, uh, eventually, he settled for a very small amount of money because, uh, of course, he needed the railroad to transport his uh, circus uh, around. Anyway, after uh, Jumbo had died, uh, his uh, hide was uh, removed. It was stuffed, and his bones were preserved also and built into his skeleton, and the uh, skeleton uh, uh, could be seen for a long time at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. And I think they still possess that skeleton, although the last time that I was there, it was uh, it was not on display, I guess, because uh, people forgot the, you know, about Jumbo and the, uh, the excitement. But, uh, you know, Jumbo just was huge, not only in size, but also in terms of the publicity that he received. So much so that a hundred years after Jumbo died, that is in uh, 1985 in St. Thomas, Ontario, in order to commemorate the centennial of the elephant's death, a statue, supposedly uh, exact same size as Jumbo uh, was uh, made, and it stands in there in in the. Uh, um, sort of the central uh, area of uh, St. Thomas, Ontario. And it's a huge statue, a beautiful uh, statue, but it isn't quite correct because the statue has large tusks and Jumbo did not have these because they had been uh, uh, considerably worn down. Anyway, um, there where it is located, there is a tavern and uh, they sell dead elephant ale somewhat distasteful, but nevertheless, they uh, 
do sell that. Uh, I wish that uh, the museum put his skeleton back on display with, you know, uh, uh, some sort of an outline of the story because it is really uh, so uh, so interesting. Uh, today, of course, we look somewhat askew at elephants performing in circuses uh, because uh, these magnificent animals should not be made to balance themselves on balls or on 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 whatever, or to parade around on their hind legs. And uh, I, I think the Basically, the days of using animals at, as circus, circus performers uh, should be um, coming to an end. But anyway, I thought that you would be interested in uh, knowing this fascinating story of Jumbo the elephant. And of course, that is how the word Jumbo entered our vocabulary. Okay, next question. What is bagass? What is bagass? B-A-G-A-S-S, not B-A-D-A-S-S, bagass, B-A-G-S, B-A-G-A-S-S. What is it? You give us a call at 514-790-0800, text is 514-800. Lots of text here. Uh, isn't corn on the cob essentially zero calorie without butter or salt because what goes in comes out the same? No, it does not. Uh, some of the corn, of course, does come out, but uh, much of the corn is digested, and boy, does it ever put on weight. So no, corn is not negative uh, calories. And someone else is concerned about what I mentioned earlier, the mistake that uh, uh, was noted, someone being injected with adrenaline instead of the uh, COVID vaccine. Uh, put that out of your mind. The chance of that happening to anyone is, is smaller than the chance of being hit by lightning. It was a, a very, very unusual situation. Do not worry about uh, about that one. All right. Uh, I think we have Ron on the line. Ron? Yeah. Hi, Dr. Joe. Uh, I just wanted to ask you something before I get to my main question. This is, this is from an earlier um, early segment. You reminded me of something. What is this residue I see on my plate every time I microwave frozen french fries? <laughs> to tell you the truth, I have never microwaved frozen French fries, so I've, I've never seen this this residue. So this might send me on an experimental uh, trip. Uh, I mean, the the French fries uh, obviously do have some fat in them, so it may be the the fat that is draining out, and then it's it's burning in the microwave. I don't know. I'd have to to, to try that. Well, you're okay. saying that this happens only with with. Uh, a store-bought frozen fries? Right, right. And, and, I was, and I was thinking to myself, you mean that, that stuff goes into my body? But anyway, I, I leave in your capable hands. You can, uh, <laughs> okay. you, can you can look into it. I'll, I'll, I'll email you. But uh, here's the question I want to ask. It's more of a math question. Um, uh, when, I, when I was taking statistics, they said there's, there's, there's lies, there's damn lies, and then there's statistics. And, yeah, that um, that supposedly, you know, who was supposedly said that, or if you look in all the textbooks, that was supposedly said by Disraeli, the, uh, uh, the former uh, British Prime Minister, yeah. and I got intrigued by that, and I tried to check it out, and and there's actually no evidence that I can find that Disraeli ever said that. But anyway, it's an interesting quote. Okay, okay. go ahead. Well, you know, when I hear these numbers that uh, the um, the government puts out about daily 
COVID cases. They, they never say how many deaths or how many hospitalizations or, or people had pre-existing conditions, or they go, old people, young people, vaccinated, un, unvaccinated, how many people uh, got... I mean, and they don't even say how many people get sick on a daily basis from, from anything. So I'm, just, I'm, I'm looking to you to sort of give us some context when, they number, when the government throws some numbers out there. You know, what does it really mean? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. You know, it's a good question. I mean, statistics, of course, you can be massaged in many, many different ways to show what you want to to show. But it's also very difficult to gather the, you know, uh, the correct information. I mean, in terms of how many people get sick, how would you know that? You know, I mean, people don't report when they get sick. But I tell well, you something that well, that, that, precisely you, you have no yeah. you have you have no benchmark to 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 measure reported cases against the, um, people normally get sick from anything. You know, it, no, it, the it, the it, only thing about you know when you look at the daily statistics, which are are certainly error prone, but the only argument that you can make is that hopefully the errors are systematic, so that you know the ups and downs are still meaningful because each one of them has an error built in, but it's the same kind of error. Uh, but anyway, there's something that, that I, I really think people should understand. And this is actually now being addressed by the government, or so I've been told. When you see the number of people in hospital who have tested positive for COVID, that is a very misleading number because that includes patients who are in hospital who are in there not because they were admitted because of COVID but they may have been admitted for a large variety of other reasons. They could have been admitted for appendicitis, but everyone who is admitted is checked for COVID. And if they test positive, they are included in the statistics of patients hospitalized with COVID. And that is really misleading because of course, as as this virus spreads, more and more people are going to test positive. So more and more people who end up in hospital for a variety of reasons are going to test positive. So this is something that really needs to be addressed. And as I understand it from from my daughter, who who is an emergency physician, the government is now aware of this. And doctors are being asked when they chart to put in whether or not that patient was admitted to the hospital because of COVID symptoms or whether it was an incidental finding when they were admitted for something else. And that is going to give us much more meaningful numbers. But like you suggest, there are lies, damn lies, and then there are statistics. So one has to be very careful. Yeah. uh, Dr. Shaw, I just want to tell you that Jumbo Mania lives on in many Walmart parking lots where I see some very large individuals driving around these motorized scooters (laughs) to the potato chip section where they load up. So his his memory uh, lives on. (laughs) That may be. Okay, getting back to statistics for a moment here, something that always annoys me is, is when numbers are reported in terms of percentages, because that can be very, very misleading in several ways. Uh, for example, a very small percentage of a very large number still gives you a large number. So, uh, you know, when, when sometimes you say that, that you know, only 1% of, of, a, uh, of a population is affected by something, that sounds like insignificant. But if you're talking about 1% of 
you know, a population of 400 million in North America, you're still talking about a significant number. The other thing is that, you know, when they say that the risk of something is increased by 100%, that sounds horrific. But the fact is that a 100% increase of a very small number still leaves you with a very small number. The classic example, of course, is buying a lottery ticket. I mean, your chance of winning in the lottery is is extremely, extremely small, correct? Now, if you buy two tickets, you have increased your chances by 100%. But in terms of practicality, it really makes a minimal difference. So percentages can be very, very uh, misleading. And that's why you know we uh, really should be looking for absolute numbers. And so... I, you know, I want to know the absolute number of patients in Quebec hospitals who are in the hospital because they are in there due to respiratory problems that were caused by COVID. And we, we want to see the day-to-day variation of, uh, of that. The positive numbers that we get, you know, they, they, I mean, right now the positivity rate is around 30%. Everyone who's tested has, of course, a chance of being positive. And, and today we're seeing 30% of people who are tested are showing up positive. That, of course, is going to increase because the uh, Omicron virus spread so, uh, so readily. But just because they are testing positive doesn't mean that they're going to be sick or that they are showing symptoms. And that, again, is very, very difficult to get proper information on. But anyway, so far, when we look at the overall numbers, it certainly looks like uh, uh, Omicron is not putting people in the hospital if they are triply vaccinated. So we still have to, to you know, promote the, the, the triple uh, vaccination. But, uh, you know, you're, you're very right in, in terms of, you know, asking questions about statistics. And someone just, you know, texted me, how is it that uh, today with um, a majority of Quebecers being vaccinated, we are in a, a worse situation than we were at this time last year? No, we, we're not in a, a worse situation uh, because we have uh, fewer uh, people ending up in hospitals due to uh, COVID. But of course, uh, this Omicron has uh, thrown a wrench into the uh, into the works. Anyway, uh, today, uh, the numbers are down from yesterday. And yesterday, they were, I think, down from the day before. So even though there are built-in errors there, uh, hopefully, we are now going in the right direction. Uh, if we look at South Africa, uh, they already have crested, and the uh, numbers there of infected people are are, are going down. So uh, I think you know eventually uh, most people will uh, be infected with this virus. Most, of course, not having any serious symptoms, but hopefully the immunity that is acquired uh, is going to prevent uh, getting sick from other variants as well. And uh, there's evidence that that may actually be happening. That's why I'm I'm somewhat optimistic that uh, uh, this time next year uh, we'll be in a better situation than uh, we are today. Anyway, that is it. We have once again run out of uh, time. 
let me remind you, uh, you can always go to our website for up-to-date information. It is mcgill.ca slash OSS, which is also where you go to sign up for our free weekly newsletter, which also attempts to give you the most up-to-date information in a palatable and somewhat entertaining fashion. So until we meet again, same station, same time next week, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.